Well, last show before our Easter break, market talkers, and already we're talking about Halloween, October the 31st, the UK's new leaving days, or not. It's never going to happen, Nigel. <laughs> it will be kicked down the road forever. We still think there is a risk of a bad Brexit. We don't want to have too much money in stocks that make all their revenue from the UK, i.e. FTSE 250 and below. We'd prefer to have money in more international companies and overseas. Well, that's our guest this week, Rachel Winter, Senior Investment Manager at Killick Co. I'm Nigel Cassidy. And to complete the set, talking Trump, trade and Tesco, it's Market.com's Neil Wilson. Hello. It's a funny old thing, this, isn't it? Because this leaving date is not really quite long enough to have another vote or a general election, but it's long enough to allow the chaos to continue. Yeah, I thought they'd either give us quite a short extension or they'd force it to be very long, as in something like two years. So I'm quite surprised they've compromised October, Halloween. But what's quite interesting is it's quite a flexible leaving date. So they're saying it's October 31st, but they would like us to come to some agreement beforehand. And if we can do that, they will let us leave earlier. And the market has responded with supreme indifference. Uh, complete indifference, yeah. I mean, the cable tried to rise above 131 very briefly, but it's as of Thursday morning, it was stuck in that area around 130.80, so one spot, 308, and just hanging around that level. But the thing is, FX markets in general are completely quiet. We've seen volatility across the piece in Q1 collapse, even euro dollar with all the ECB and FOMC stuff happening is still stuck in, in a very tight range and not really doing an awful lot yeah and i think probably like the rest of us fx markets are just incredibly bored of brexit it's Ennui. just dragging on and on mm. and i don't think it's going to move a huge amount unless we get some really concrete news so in terms of the balance i was ask about this the balance between the international stocks in the 100 and the 250 does this materially change your attitude to what shares you will buy for people Not really. For now, I don't think anything's changed. Uh, We've just sort of kicked the can down the road. We still think there is a risk of a bad Brexit. We don't want to have too much money in stocks that make all their revenue from the UK, i.e. FTSE 250 and below. We'd prefer to have money in more international companies and overseas, so FTSE 100 and overseas equities. But it has to be said that the UK, Neil, has spent a phenomenal amount of money on precautions uh, for a crash out. Uh, Companies have stockpiled materials and everything like that. I mean, that is a cost that somebody will have to pay for at some point. It is a cost, yeah. And there's obviously, I think we mentioned it before, the opportunity cost as well involved in in what you could have done uh, with all those resources at the time. But I guess the thing about stockpiling is that you kind of, people have all been geared up for March 29th and businesses had all their plans ready for March 29th. And then they've had to now shift them once and then shift them now shifting again. There's just no certainty. There's no more certainty because of this. It just makes it worse. And we've still got a cliff edge, actually, haven't we? Because, I mean, Mrs May still harbours ambitions somewhere of leaving earlier, though how she's going to do that? Yeah, I think that's quite overly optimistic. I don't see what agreement could be reached Mm. over the next few months. And one of the things that we've seen in the meantime, as business goes through this endless waiting process, is that companies have had to make decisions about, say, moving hubs to the continent. Yeah, and I think that could be really detrimental further down the line. So I think companies are getting quite frustrated. They're just thinking, right, let's let's almost give up on the UK. We've already seen that with a lot of the banks. They've taken the precaution of moving a lot of their operations to Europe. And even if we decide not to leave the EU, I don't think those operations will come back. I think the damage has already been done. 
Funniest thing I saw on about stockpiling was a letter from some Waitrose shopper who said he wasn't going to stockpile spam because he doesn't eat spam now. <laughs> Why would he start sp- stockpiling it? So he's going to stockpile fancy chocolates and champagne. Is he? <laughs> it's very sensible. very sensible. I think I'm doing that anyway. <laughs> Actually, this is nothing to do with Brexit, but my favourite overheard remark in Waitrose was, do we have parmesan for both houses? <laughs> uh, the IMF actually had a few things to say about Brexit. World economic outlook, global growth for 2019 has been revised down, reflecting trade anxieties, corporate debt levels per anyone you like. They're sort of saying that growth is slowing a bit um, a bit worse than they thought. Um, I, I mean, it just kind of ties in with what we've been seeing in the markets recently and the way the Fed has turned, the way the ECB is turning. I don't think it's any huge surprise that the global economy is slowing down to the extent that it is. I guess it's just how long it goes on for, how deep does it go. It does look probably that central banks are kind of, the way they've shifted early does suggest that they've got a handle on this at the moment. The problem is if it does get a lot worse, they don't have much in the weaponry to, they don't have much ammunition really to, to fight it anymore, except maybe the Fed does, it's, it's in a better position than most. But the ECB, for example, I mean, if, if things get worse in Germany in the yeah. manufacturing sector over the next few months, I mean... what They've got nothing left to do. Zip. <laughs> and Wednesday's minutes from the Fed, pretty inconclusive. Nothing new there, really. I mean, if we go back to last year, there was a time when we expected four interest rate rises in the US in 2019. That was then dropped to two. They said at the start, of this year they think that's now going to be zero and yesterday's minutes really just confirmed that so they said no rate rises and in fact they've almost left open the door for possibly a rate cut or perhaps some further quantitative easing there was a little hint of that in yesterday's minutes Mr. Trump was standing over the, whoever wrote it. He was, mm. yeah. He's and Mike Pence keen. as well. He's getting a, he's coming in on the you should be cutting rates type type message as well. So there's, I think he's been he's normally quite quiet. He just sort of sits in the background mm-hmm. normally, but he's actually talking up monetary policy. Which it's is so fun. silly because the bank is supposed to be independent. So if you have all these politicians saying, "Oh, you should do this," mm-hmm. it makes the bank almost unable to do that because it makes them look non-independent. I can't remember the name of the, the president of the Fed at the time, but Lyndon B. Johnson apparently was so enraged that he'd uh, raised rates that he had to, he held them up against the wall in the White House or at Camp <laughs> really? David or wherever he was. So there was a real, you know, there's there's been a there's been a tussle, I think, for for, for decades between mm. the administrations and the Fed. I don't think it's, it's actually all that new. I think it's just that we got used to the sort of Obama approach and that was just, you know, just just um, open the taps. And yeah, and I suppose we're not used to having it so in the public eye. So Trump and his tweeting and his very open criticism of the Federal Reserve, I think that's quite new to us, even if the idea of politicians mm. and central bankers arguing is not new. Uh, talking of Trump, uh, he of course met the Chinese vice premier and said the two nations should know over the next four weeks whether a trade deal should be reached. But the Financial Times was saying this week, Rachel, that maybe this sort of sense that risky assets will go higher if there is a deal, maybe that just was wrong in the first place. I think it's already happened. I mean, the Chinese market is up about 30% this year so far. Emerging markets have already recovered a lot of what they lost last year. And that's really on hopes of a trade deal. So I think if we do get some sort of deal, I question how much further there is to go in the short term. The market has rallied quite firmly again, and it's based on this hope and expectation of the trade deal. And yeah, I think it's a buy the rumour 
sell the fact type scenario. Bit of talk around the place about better times for emerging markets, Neil, or perhaps some emerging markets. Uh, clearly, as you said last week, Turkey would not probably be a great move at the moment. Do you think their time might have come? I'm not an investment no, manager, but I would just say that it, it kind of emerging markets tend to always be about what's going on with the dollar and US interest rates. If you buy the idea that the minute, and it seems to be the prevailing attitude that the dollar rally is probably running out of steam, it keeps the dollar index keeps trying to get its head above 97 and keeps failing, the Fed's turned dovish and so on. I think, you know, if you do see that, the dollar start to come back and retreat to sort of levels that we've seen in the past, sort of below 95 at least, and then maybe down towards 90 again, then, then you could you would certainly see a lot more relief for emerging markets. And I think with the Fed having signaled that it's not really going to raise rates for a couple of years, that's going to give a lot of relief to a lot of these countries. I think you're right. And you've also got in the short term the possibility of some sort of monetary easing in China. So that has been rumoured. The US, the UK, Europe, we've all done huge amounts of monetary easing. And I think it has been good for our stock markets. China hasn't really done anything like that yet. And if they do... I think longer term, it could be very good Mm. for the Chinese markets. The trouble is, it is like a drug. It's rather Moorish, isn't it? And it's not a good situation if they have to just keep pumping in QE, just keep... Well, you see that with the way the US markets reacted spasmodically to the Fed trying to do the quantitative tightening program and and trying to raise rates. You know, anything above 3% on the 10-year and they start freaking out. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Now, I'm worried about my Stilton and my smoked salmon because Mr. Trump has uh, uh, talked about higher... So, yeah, Mr. Trump's planning to possibly slap some extra levies on £8.4 billion worth of exports from the EU. This is all apparently about Airbus. I don't quite get the connection there. Oh, my gosh. This has been going on for about 15 years. Mm. The EU has subsidised Airbus very heavily. The US has subsidised Boeing very heavily. It's incredibly expensive and costly to develop aircraft, and it can't be done without huge government support. That's really why there are only two major aircraft Mm. managers manufacturers in the world. And Airbus and Boeing have been arguing for 15 years about who has received the most government support. So a legal case came out last week saying that Airbus had perhaps received a bit more support. Trump is annoyed about this. He believed that's disadvantaged Boeing. And therefore, he's retaliating by imposing these tariffs mm. on the EU. He doesn't care about Stilton or smoked salmon mm. or olive oil. He only eats McDonald's. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a score draw, isn't it? The, yeah. the whole Boeing Airbus thing. They should just walk away from it and just, just accept it's... that there's going to be support mm. for both forever. Probably. Do you exactly. want to add anything to your weekly rant about the euro area? Well, I mean, we know that the the economies there are suffering and that without QE, they, they just simply can't grow. So um, I, the ECB is highlighted more downside risks again in the last couple of days there was a meeting of uh, the European Central Bank um, on Wednesday you know without more stimulus it's hard to see how they're going to how they're going to recover maybe why they didn't want a no deal yeah I mean I think you know Europe has as much to lose from no deal as Britain does probably in that the disruption to their internal economy would be would be quite severe let's talk a little bit about oil Let's move back beyond the $70 a barrel mark. What's going on there? It's a combination of factors. There's OPEC plus have cut production. So that's the OPEC members plus Russia. They, they announced fresh cuts to production and they're following through with them quite well. Compliance is quite high. Then you've got sanctions, US sanctions on Iran and Venezuela, which are starting to feed through. Venezuelan sanctions, I think, have taken around half a million barrels a day out of the market. 
um, set in on Iran, there's still waivers and so on, but it's still having an effect in terms of the forward kind of the market pricing. And then Libya, there's fighting in Libya and that's disrupting supply or, or has the, the threat of disrupting supply. And that seems to be driving up prices. Demand growth is maybe not declining quite as sharply as we maybe thought. There was the IE report out yeah, on, that's true. on Thursday and they maintained demand growth outlook, I think. Yes. Traders are, are assuming that the market's getting a bit tighter over the coming months. The question is whether it gets less tight towards the end of the year when more US supply can come onto the international market. Probably the most at risk are the straight producers because all they're doing is taking oil from the ground and selling it. If the price falls and it falls below their cost of production, they then can't produce any oil. That's what we had when the oil dropped to $28 a barrel back in 2015. A company like Shell or BP, they're much more diverse. They are able to take costs out of their production and therefore they are much more protected from this volatility in the oil price. Now, talking of major shares in the UK, Tesco saw a big hike in the dividend. Pretty strong results from them. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the 13th straight quarter of like-for-like sales growth in the UK. All very strong. I think, for me, the noteworthy thing is the margin improvements. It's up to close to 4% now, which really, for a supermarket group, is looking pretty strong if you compare it with its peers. It's, it's pretty decent. And the profits rose sharply. Just a all round good story for Tesco, but I think you know they talk about like uncertainty, the Brexit uncertainty, and stuff like that. But actually, for supermarkets, the last year has been perfect because you've got gently rising inflation around two percent level, just above, and real wage growth. So wage growth marching ahead of inflation. So people have got a little bit more money in their pockets. They don't feel that certainty to make the big purchase on the new dining table or, or new car, maybe, but they're, they're happy to spend a bit more on their weekly shop. But I think the question for Tesco is, what's next? Mm. So they've already taken quite drastic action. We've got drastic Dave cutting costs. Mm. Pulling exactly. out of overseas markets. And it's not really a growth story, is it? I don't think it is at the moment. So what he's done has clearly worked very well. As you say, the margin is margin is up from 3.5% to a, a whopping 4%. <laughs> Incredibly in high. in supermarket terms, it's, that's not bad, is Exactly, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's relatively high compared to other supermarkets. But I'm not so sure what else he could do. So he has launched this new Jack's discount brand to compete with Lidl and Audi. And it does seem to be going well so far. There is a lot of competition in the space. And I question how much further they can grow. And a bit of a surprise from Dan Elm. They're doing rather well. I mean, I mean, they've had profit warnings, haven't they? Yeah, but they seem to have... Uh, so they've integrated the uh, World Stores acquisition. That's that they, They've got that in. That was lower margin, but they've managed to sort of fix all that up. Through that, they've got a, a better online offering. So I think, yeah, Dan Elm's done quite well. It did, did take well. six months to deliver a sofa to a family member. Of oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> Don't let's get too excited about I think, that. I think the thing is, it's quite... It's reasonably well priced at the lower end. So I think people, it does reasonably well, no matter what the economic backdrop is, because people still need to replace a curtain now and again and so on. So they're fairly sure of, of custom as long as they keep their prices in, in check. And I know they were stockpiling sofas, I think. Brexit is going to be such a shock. We all need a nice sit down. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But what you could say is the housing market is so slow at the moment. People are unable to move. So perhaps they're upgrading, they're redecorating, yeah. they're changing their yeah. sofas. So perhaps it's quite a good environment for companies like Dunelm. House builders, generally speaking, have had quite a good run. McCarthy and Stone, retirement homes, not so good. Not so much. Yeah, they've had a very tough couple of years. And the reason for this is that the whole housing market has slowed down. No one is wanting to sell their existing family homes because the prices have come down. Therefore, no one is downsizing into retirement homes. And that's what McCarthy and Stone offer. So they're really, really suffering and they're really experiencing low demand at the moment. 
So they should they should maybe diversify into studio homes for millennials. Or funeral care. <laughs> oh no, that's a bad market at the moment too. That's though. a bad market, yeah, that's more competition there. <laughs> now ASOS was, as we pointed out many times before, if you wanted to pick one company that's disrupted retail clothing, it would be ASOS. Mm. Uh, they had a few shocks. Another, even bigger one now, profits dropped by 87% in the year. Yeah, and they did say themselves in their update that they have been quite complacent over the last couple of years and they have taken their eye off the ball. They have stopped producing new products and new innovative products um, as quickly as they were before. And I think they have perhaps to some extent failed to keep up with the huge amount of new competition that's come into the market. So you've got companies like Boohoo that come in, have come in relatively quickly and they are competing in the same market. I think ASOS will be fine. I think yeah. they're a fantastic company, but I think they've just realised they do need to up their game. Profits fell 87%, but the shares jumped something, you know, 10% on the day or something like that. So the the market has reset its expectations in the near term, having had that profits warning in December. And now it's just simply looking ahead again. And, you know, US growth outlook looks very strong, I think. they've The, the problems that they had in, with the Atlanta um, distribution center was because they had too much demand. They just couldn't fulfill it. So those are good problems to have. Well, they supply to over 200 countries. I mean, that is a massive Oh, operation, they're huge. Yeah. And their, their delivery is fantastic. And that is what people want. So I remember meeting a distribution company a while ago, and they were saying they deal with high-value, important deliveries. And one example they gave was for next-day deliveries for women's clothing. And they said, you know, you might think it's funny to put this in the really important category, Mm -hmm. but if someone's ordered a dress for a night out and it doesn't arrive, it causes huge reputational damage. (laughs) They will, exactly. I've been there. (laughs) It's not a happy place to be, but ASOS is incredibly good at that. Rachel, I have to ask you, are you a serial returner? Because ASOS have waged war on these people who order like 10 things, perhaps parade round on social media wearing them and then send them back. I don't do that. I do... Parading. I don't, I don't parade. <laughs> Parading, taking selfies. Yes. I don't do that. I do order many, many clothes online and I do send a huge amount back. But as you say, ASOS does have a huge problem with people ordering clothes, wearing them and then sending them back. So they're really trying to crack down on that, rightly so, I think. Whatever problems ASOS has had, I mean, they just fall into insignificance when we compare them with Debenhams. It's kind of the end game now, isn't it? Mike Ashley lost £150 million. You can see why he's quite annoyed. (laughs) I don't agree with him completely, but you totally see his point when the lenders and and the board have basically stitched up the shareholders. Yeah, I I do get the impression we we don't know the whole story, but it does Mm. feel as though... He was trying to bail them out. He did offer them money. They've turned him down because they didn't want him to become the chief executive. Mm-hmm. It'd be funny in a few years' time, the children or the grandchildren will be saying, Dad, Mum, what's what? a department store? They yeah. will, yeah. John Lewis is surely going to hang around. I they like... won't have any competition, will they? Essentially, Debenhams and House of Fraser. I mean, that was one of the problems for Debenhams, was that they were competing against House of Fraser and John Lewis. And that was about it. True, but I would imagine that John Lewis is a lot more popular with the slightly more mature markets who like to go to its physical stores and I wonder if in 50 years time when a lot of those people aren't around and you've got a younger generation who want to buy everything online I think John Lewis will struggle if it hasn't upped its game online 
And I think now that we are buying more things online generally, we're probably more likely to go directly to the brands rather than mm-hmm. going to a third-party retailer like a John yeah. Lewis. Because yeah. ASOS could, as we pointed out before, ASOS could open shops. I mean, I was thinking like the White Company. Do you remember they were all online and suddenly they're now on the high street? Yeah, that is People true. can't resist it. Yeah, a good example actually is Primark. So this week they've launched the biggest Primark in the UK in Birmingham. They put out traffic warnings this week saying, be warned, 5,000 people are Mm. expected to come to this opening day of Primark. So that does show you that people are willing to go to some stores. Mm. I think it's that point about buying direct from the brand. You don't really need the person to almost curate a load of items for you anymore because you can find you can get them Mm. direct. So you don't need this sort of company that's a, a sort of middleman effectively you can go straight to brand now and that's where department stores have really probably failed and, and Primark they, they are basically a middleman they are exactly and Primark exactly. couldn't go online because the stuff's too cheap I can't imagine there'd be any margin yeah. yeah I think the average basket size at Primark is something like three pounds <laughs> so for them to offer deliveries it's just mad, not feasible that's mad I think Debenham's coming out what might be good is once if they strip back all the stores and then they, they sort of move away from this blue cross sale mentality Yes. And then, you know, it might be good for margins for others. So next, and Marks and Spencers, for example, won't, won't be competing, won't be pressed down by all this competition. So you might actually see a bit more, uh, a bit of improvement and margin improvement on the, on, the, on the high street. I hope so. Yeah, I think the sell mentality, I think, is actually really damaging because it makes you never want to buy anything at all mm. because you assume it's going to go in the sale next week. I think at the moment you have to be incredibly careful with retail. Really, I'd only want to buy into it via a company that is very active and very successful online. And just before we go, one or two companies with results before Easter. Shall we start with Rio Tinto? Yes, so they've had quite an interesting couple of months. We've had this dam breaking at Vale, um, which has caused a huge spike in the iron ore price. So that's been very good for Rio Tinto and other miners that focus mainly on iron ore. I wonder whether or not that will be temporary. Mm. So I think the next set of results for Rio will be very good. But if the iron ore price goes back down, once supply sorts itself out, I wonder if profits and therefore the share price could come back a bit. But I think it was Deutsche maybe uh, talking about prices for iron ore and copper being in you know, tighter supply over the next sort of couple of quarters, but then through 2020 starting to, to open up again. So as you say, maybe a temporary benefit. They're so heavily focused on iron ore and you've got to think, what is that used for? Mostly for building. And if we do see a bit of a slowdown in construction across China and other countries, is that negative for iron ore? So we at Colic, we'd rather be in commodity producers that are exposed to commodities that are used for things like electric cars, more copper, lithium, cobalt, that sort of thing. JD Sports, if you get fed up with Sports Direct, uh, they've done better, haven't they? I mean, they're doing very well. Their share price has gone in opposite directions over the last sort of year. For JD Sports, it's about the US market now with the acquisition of Finish Line and they're converting old Finish Line stores into JD Sports stores. They are in a good position now. So, yeah, I think we're looking at a much more positive outlook for, for JD Sports and than uh, for, for many other retailers. Yeah. And they've got results coming up. And they, of course, also bought Foot Asylum and Pistols. this company called Pretty Green. Pretty Green. Pretty vacant. Uh, sex Pistols, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> questions remain over what role Pretty Green will play in JD Sports' wider business, apparently. <laughs> yes, that Nancy name for a sports <laughs> shop. <laughs> Pretty Green. And one other company we might just uh, look at with results coming up, RB used to be known as Reckitt Benkheiser. Yeah, so quite an interesting week for this stock. Um, So previously, they owned a drug called Suboxone, which Mm. was an opioid treatment. They actually sold that drug to Indivior, 
um, a couple of years ago. And this week, um, the Food and Drugs Administration over in the US has announced they are investigating Suboxone for false marketing. Um, they're expecting mm-hmm. a fine in the region of $3 billion, and therefore the market cap of Reckitt, which sold the drug to Indivior, has come off by $3 billion this week. And I wonder what they knew when they sold it. Well, that's yeah, the question. That's, that's the question, isn't it? And Burold and Divya's shares have tanked. Oh, something mm. like 78% when and the news came out. already super volatile because of these um, Dr. Reddy's competition and various US court judgments that you get, whether or not this Indian company, Dr. Reddy's, is, is mm. allowed to market a generic version mm. of it and so on. So the, the Indivio share price has been a, a roller coaster for a couple of years now, I think. Do they still have a households division? So I think the rest of the business is chugging along quite nicely. You could argue it's in the consumer staples sector, which tends to do quite well when the market is volatile, as it has been over the last few months. The wider results, I think, won't be so bad, but clearly this issue with Suboxone is a big overhang on the stock this week. That's the Indivio share price, the way it moves. It's really... It's these court because it's court judgment, court judgment, court judgment. Yes, N- Neil is now sharing a chart, which, which, <laughs> works, yeah. which works so well on a podcast. <laughs> it's a very it's steep downhill slope. <laughs> well, we've made it to Easter, or very nearly. The podcast will be away with the bunnies just for a couple of weeks. Do subscribe so you'll get the next show as soon as it's ready. Uh, you can do that wherever you get your podcast. Many thanks to Rachel Winter. Uh, it was fun to have her here. She's senior investment manager from Killick & Co. Also to the Sage of Primrose street neil wilson till next time from all of us here at markets.com in the city of london it's goodbye